All right, well, most of you know that on our church fellowship nights, I had been working through the book of Acts. And in booking, working through the book of Acts, I think we spent two and a half years or so working through that approximately one chapter at a time, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more. Who am I kidding? Never more than a chapter, but sometimes a little bit less. And we're, we finished that. And so I was, I was thinking about things that we could have a little bit of a mini-series on for our church fellowship nights that maybe would be distinct from the Psalms, insights and Psalms that we're doing on Wednesday nights and what's going to be our new series on Sunday mornings, which is the prayers of Paul. And so as we think about, I was thinking through that, I thought, I, I want to do a series that reminds us of the cohesiveness of the Bible in just a really small way. And so the title of this mini-series is going to be Only God Can Save. Only God Can Save. And what made me think about this before I even start the devotion is that as I was talking to, sharing the gospel with a Muslim man recently, he said that our faith, the Islamic faith and Christianity are 80% the same. I think he's 70 or 80 is what he said. And I said, what do you mean by that? He, He said, well, you believe in the Old Testament scriptures and we believe in the Old Testament scriptures. And by volume, I guess that's how he came up with 70 or 80%. Because if you take out the New Testament, if you just thumb through with your, your own Bible, you know, you might come up with, right about here is the split, and a lot of this at the end is not part of, this is a study Bible, so it's not, so you get, kind of get it close for you here. Yeah, something like this. And so I guess that's where he's coming up proportionally, saying we basically believe the same thing for the most part. I said, <laughs> it's true that we maybe believe some of the same things, but the whole, the whole story of the Bible, the, the whole story of the Old Testament is building towards something. It climaxes in a person and work of Jesus Christ, which you reject that Jesus Christ is God, reject that Jesus Christ was the, was the salvation or the Redeemer, the one who could rescue mankind from the predicament they were in due to sinfulness. So imagine the irony of agreeing with somebody about the 80% of buildup that leads to a culmination that you then reject that part of it. I said, don't you see that the Old Testament is all building, it's all painting a picture, it's, it's illustrating, and it's climaxing, it's foreshadowing, it's moving towards, it's establishing the storyline so that we can get to the punchline of, of the whole thing which is that what had been pictured and what was being foreshadowed and what was being pointed to by the Old Testament is here. It's being revealed in detail now, what had been revealed in shadows and illustrations and symbolism and that type of thing. I said, so do you mind if I just walk through the Old Testament with you a little bit so I can show you how as we go through a number of these different stories, we see this theme being built that only God can save but he's building towards a way of salvation that is specific to the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so, I don't know, we'll see how this goes, but the, the, the title for Up in the Tape Room, Only God Can Save, is going to be the title of the series. We'll do a little mini-series on it, but we're going to start with tonight, You Can't Fix This. You Can't Fix This. So turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. And what I mean by you can't fix this, and as you're turning, I'll give a little bit of an introduction here. You see, life is full of problems, disasters, and trials, mostly of your own making. 
It's full of it. Full of problems, disasters, and trials. And those problems and disasters and trials are often caused by mistakes of various kinds when you talk about of your own making. Now, obviously, there's other things that have nothing to do with you, really. You're just a bystander in it to some extent. Uh, you're just catching shrapnel from what's going on in other people's lives. That, that's true at times. But as I talk about trials or problems, disasters, and trials that are of your own making, usually those things are caused by mistakes that are being made, and some are more serious than others. Now, the most common instinctual question to ask when you make a mistake, or not to ask, but that is asked, the common instinctual reaction to making a mistake is, how can I fix this? How can I fix this? A mistake was made, now how can I make it right, or how can I patch this up? How can I undo what I've done to cause myself this trial or this distress? And many times, as you think about that, a mistake has been made, It's caused some problem in my life. What can I do to fix it? Many times you can remedy or correct a mistake relatively easily. An example of that would be you erase it. You're you're doing some kind of an art project, project, you pull out your eraser, you erase it and you keep going. Sometimes if you're typing something on a computer, as I'm often spending a lot of time on computer, I make a mistake, no big deal. I just edit it. So a mistake was made, doesn't cause any severe problem, it's easy to, relatively easy to correct. Or you replaced the broken part, or you apologize, or you cover the cost of replacing something for someone else. Your your actions, your decisions, your mistake cost somebody else to have something be broken, and you fix it pretty simply by just replacing it. So if I accidentally knocked, you know, your cell phone out of your hand and it's shattered, the, the right thing from my perspective to do there would be to try to make it right with you. The best way to do that would be to repair your cell phone or, or to replace it if need be. And is that a little bit painful? Sure, but is it that hard? Not really. It's relatively easy to fix it. Now, sometimes when mistakes are made, you can disguise the mistake or patch things back together. Not completely, but enough that it will be workable. Think of just a little dab of paint, cover that up, or clever trim work. Many of us are experts at that when it comes to carpentry because we don't know how to do carpentry to begin with, so we, we become experts in trim work because we cover things up with a little bit of quarter round. Or is that, is that just, that might just be me. But how about duct tape, super glue, bungees, bailing wire? All sound familiar? Ways that we try to remedy or fix or correct a mistake by just sort of patching it back together. An example of that might be something that's easy to correct is you run over a rock with your lawnmower. Now you can easily correct that. You just change the blades on the lawnmower. Something that you patch up when it's a mistake, you run over the same rock, it blows the rock through the side of your lawnmower deck, and you just put a bunch of duct tape over that, cover it up, and you're good to go. I know this, both examples, (laughs) from experience. I mean, who's ever run over a rock and see it it blow a softball-sized hole in the deck of your lawnmower? Anyone else? I got one hand saying they've seen that. I was flabbergasted by that, but it was nothing duct tape couldn't handle. And we limped that thing along for quite a while longer. But when you're thinking about these things, other times there's mistakes that are made where there's nothing you can do to fix the mistake. Things are broken beyond repair, or at least beyond your capacity to repair them. And the consequences of sin represent that kind of a problem the kind of a problem that you cannot fix on your own. That it's going to take God's intervention 
to undertake to fix that problem. That's the title of our mini-series here, Only God Can Save. You know, knowing or recognizing that you have the kind of problem that you have no ability to fix, it doesn't necessarily stop man from trying to find his own solution, and we'll see that here as we turn to Genesis chapter 3 when, we're, when we get into the text. But ultimately, we're going to see that God alone is going to have to come to the rescue. It's not the kind of thing, when you talk about the consequences of sin, it's not the kind of thing that you can fix that kind of problem. And so there's several clear pictures of this in the Old Testament where God shows, as the storyline builds, that there's going to be kinds of, the kinds of problems that affect our, our spiritual, especially the focus is on our spiritual well-being, our spiritual health. There's going to be the kinds of problems that are caused by man's own decisions and their own actions that man isn't going to be able to fix on his own. It's going to take God intervening in order to repair or rescue sinful man from that predicament. And so we see that from the very beginning of the Bible here in Genesis chapter 3. So that's one of the pictures that I want to review here tonight. There's several of these clear pictures that point to this idea that only God is going to be able to fix this problem that we have with sinfulness and how it's all building the narrative of the Bible, the story of the Bible is building towards that climax again in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So a little bit of a long introduction there, but we're in Genesis chapter 3. Let's start with verse 1 and we're going to see the first mistake that's made. Okay, and it involves sin. It involves choosing something other than what God says is right. And that's our definition of sin, is something that is in opposition to what God has said or what God says is true or right. Now, we pick up in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So we start here with mistakes often involve negative influences in our lives. And here we have a negative influence. It's a serpent under the control of Satan. So Satan is speaking through this serpent, and that's something that you can see from Revelation that he's called the great serpent or that great snake or something to that effect, so that we know that it's a reference to this incident. Well, on one hand, it's a literal serpent, but on the other hand, it's under the control or Satan is speaking through it. And there's different opinions about that, but that, that, would, be, that would be my take on it without having gotten into it too far. So we have this negative influence in Eve's life that came along, and it's a serpent that is, again, we can just substitute Satan for that. Satan is influencing this whole scenario by speaking through the serpent to Eve. And it says that Satan is more cunning, the serpent is more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So we know it's a literal serpent, but on the other hand, what makes the serpent cunning is that it's under the influence of Satan. And when you define cunning, it means something that is marked by exceptional skill and deception. That's what makes something cunning, is a skilled or skilled in deception. And so Satan often deals in subtlety rather than attacking in an obvious manner. So does this seem very Satan-like as you think about Satan and you're trying to picture Satan from an evil, dark, a dark perspective? You know, the, the, trip, the typical view of Satan as this, this evil character with a pitchfork and horns? No, that's not this at all. There's this very innocent kind of a thing where a serpent begins speaking to Eve. She's not really that surprised by it, it doesn't seem like, so there's maybe more to think about in terms of that. But in any event, it's something very subtle. He just starts talking to her. He does it very conversationally. 
You see that Satan influences people from the very beginning in very subtle ways, in a very crafty way, and in a very conversational way, in a way that feels like you would not even be on guard necessarily expecting that somebody was out to get you here. So then the other thing that I want you to see, though, is that as Satan says, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden, one thing you have to know is that God's truth preceded Satan's lies. Now, God had already spoken, especially in Genesis 1, but uh, some in Genesis 1, but especially in Genesis 2, two man had given them some truth. God hadn't left man hanging without having any standard of truth to go by or to compare things that are being said to. From the very beginning, God's truth preceded Satan's lies. Man wasn't left empty-handed, where he had no way of discerning what was true. God had just got done telling them truth about these very, this very fruit that would end up being the stimulus or the thing that was used by Satan to get man to sin, to go against God. How could you go against God if God hadn't first laid out his truth, laid out his instruction, laid out his standard? That's the kind of God that we have is he did, he did that first. And I think sometimes you can overlook that in this scenario. God reveals his truth to man. So man is without excuse in that regard. Man cannot say, I didn't know. You cannot say, I didn't know, because God has given us the spirit of truth in the church age here. He's also given us the word of truth, and he's expected us to know it, to study it, to then have that available so that thy word have I hidden my heart so I might not sin against you. By knowing God's truth, I would be, I'd have that available as a weapon as the the word of God is one of our best defensive weapons. So that's something that we see here even from the very beginning. Now you have to also note the crafty question is effectively being summarized as, did God put any limits in place? That's really what Satan is saying when he says, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Did God say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he's already assuming that God said there's some that you can eat from and there's some that he said you can't eat from. So what he's really asking is, did God put any limits in place? And the answer is, yes, he did. Now Satan's going to use that, though. You see, God's truth and instructions were clear. Let's read verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now is that a word-for-word paraphrase of what God had said or what was recorded in chapter 2? No. Is what is recorded in chapter 2 all that God said? You'd have to, you know, make some kind of a assumption there to say that one way or the other. I think we focus a lot on the fact that she didn't exactly quote what is recorded in chapter 2. But nonetheless, she did pretty good, better than most of us can do at quoting God's word, right? And so, was, was the truth unclear? Was, was God's instructions unclear to Eve? The answer is no. Off the cuff with an intellect far superior to ours, she was able to repeat back the essence of what God's instructions had been. See, the issue wasn't confusion or lack of clear instruction. We tried to justify our rejection and rebellion against God with that kind of an attitude, that I didn't understand it or it was unclear to me. That's not the issue. For most Christians, anyway, that's not the issue. Most Christians can't claim ignorance as they're violating God's will, rejecting God, rebelling against God. The issue isn't that Eve didn't know 
what God had said. The issue is she didn't care enough about what God said to take God at his word in that moment and to resist the lie of Satan. And in your life, that's true as well. You're not normally confused about God's will for you either. It comes down to overt defiance in most instances. Where you have an option, the road has a fork in it, you know which one is right, and yet the flesh is driving the boat, and so the boat veers off down a lane that God never had planned for you. But it's not. When we're being honest about it, it's not through some ignorance on our part. It's, for, it's usually from willful disobedience and unwillingness to trust God and take him at his word. We need to keep moving. So now we have God's instructions were clear. God did put limits in place. And so now an alternative is presented. Verse 4 and 5. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What had God said? Dying you will die. What does the serpent say? You will not surely die. For God knows, this is God's motive. You want to undermine God's motives. That's what he does here. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So here we have the first recorded lie. You don't need God, is what he's really saying. You can be God, or at least he's saying you can be like God or more like God. And you think about that in our day, though it's not any different. Some people talk about how different things are in our day. It's not that different in our day. From the very beginning, Satan was appealing to mankind to, with, a, with a message that essentially said God can't be trusted What God says isn't true. God doesn't know better than you. You could actually, in fact, substitute yourself in a place of preeminence, in a place of importance, on equal footing or greater than God. That's what you could do. That's what you should do. That's what you deserve because you're so important. And that's been going on from the very beginning. You can be God. If if you can be God, then you can set your own standards for truth. Now, all of a sudden, there is no such thing as truth. And the reality is the truth is limited to coming from God. God is the source of truth. The only truth can co- has to come from him. So he's laid out his truth in the word of truth so that we know what is true. There is no such thing as alternative truth or personalized truth. There's God's truth and there's Satan's lies and that's it. Let me say that again. There's God's truth and there's Satan's lies, and that's it. This isn't make up your own truth or make up your own alternative reality. There is reality, and then there's not reality. And so in our day, we hear this more and more and more, but friends, it's not unique. It's been going on since the beginning. There's only one truth, and the alternative is error and lies. Man doesn't determine his own truth. His perception or experiences may vary, but truth is fixed. Your perception or experiences don't determine what's true or not true. That's based on what God says is true. Kids, remember that because one of the things you hear over and over is that each person can take their own experiences and can use those to determine what's true. Now, we determine what's true by looking at the word of truth. Then we compare what we hear to that standard, and that standard being absolutely straight shows us when we compare anything crooked to something that is straight, it shows us what's crooked about ourselves, and it shows us what's crooked about what the world is teaching. So if we don't always come back to the standard, we're lost. We have no way to have, we have no horizon. We have no sense of direction. 
You know, if you lose sight of the horizon, a pilot crashes the airplane because he can't even tell what's up or down anymore if he doesn't have a horizon to look at. If you don't see the sun, if you have no compass, the only way you can see direction or sense direction or, or determine direction is to see a fixed standard. And in that case, it's the sun comes up in the east, it sets in the west. And so from that we can determine, am I going north, south, east, or west? But it's because there is a fixed standard. And this lie here, this alternative that's being presented, you could be like God instead of trusting God, it was the greatest lie possible. And the reason was because it questioned God's love ultimately. If you track the logic, God is holding something good back from you, is what he, what he starts with. The natural segue from that is God must not care about you. God must not really want what's best for you. And it ends with a conclusion that God must not really love you. That's what Satan's getting at when he's saying, has God really said? And when he suggests that God is holding something back that man deserves or man needs. That presumes that man would agree with him then that God isn't good, that God doesn't love him, that God isn't for him, that God isn't on his side. And if you start to agree with that, then you're going to be susceptible to the alternative that's being presented. Now we have the great mistake or a mistake being made. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So here we have volition on full display. Human volition The ability to make choices is being illustrated perfectly here. God didn't make robots. In order for man to exercise volition, there had to be choice, a choice to make. An alternative is presented by Satan. To what? An alternative to God's instructions, to God's truth. And so the man has the ability to make a decision. Man has always had the ability to make a decision between trusting God or not trusting God. When people try to peddle to you that God gave you a gift that allows you to have faith or not have faith, that some have it and some don't have it, come back to this passage. God made man to have a volition, the ability to choose his truth or to choose Satan's lies. But man had the capacity for choosing either one of those. And in this instance, unfortunately, we have original sin and the deceiver was preferable to Eve and Adam instead of God's truth. Now, you tend to justify bad decisions. You want to see some of that? You see that right here. How do you tend to justify bad decisions? Well, look at this. What did she see? She saw that the tree was good for food. That sounds like a pretty legitimate reason to eat that fruit, right? God said no, but here we have justification taking place. No, it looks good for food. The tree was good for food. She saw that. Then she saw that the tree was pleasant to the eyes. How can it be bad? How can it be bad if it looks so good? Isn't that what the world is saying? How can something that feels so right be so wrong? Isn't that what Satan is saying to you? When he's tempting you with things that are in direct opposition to what God says is right? Man justifies that by saying, God would never make something feel so right if it's wrong. No, your feelings aren't the thing that drives this bus, or at least they shouldn't be driving this bus. Using your mind to reflect back on what God says is true is what should inform your decisions about right and wrong. What's the third thing there? She said that it 
It was a tree that was desirable to make one wise. What's bad about being wise? Doesn't everybody want to be wise? What's the problem with all this, kids? All of those justifications, were they in alignment with what God had said? No, you can just shout it out. No, they weren't. God had given clear instructions not to eat this fruit, no matter how good it looked, no matter how good it would feel, how well it would fill their stomach, no matter how wise it would make them. God said no. Are there times you're just going to have to take God at his word, even when it seems like maybe God is wrong? Kids, is there ever going to be a time where the world has you convinced that maybe God made a mistake and he's wrong? Is it possible that the world will try to convince you of that? Yeah, and so when you come to that place and you're kind of on the edge now, maybe, maybe this is okay. Well, then what are you going to come back to? But what did God say? No. And, and if God said no, then what are you going to say? No, this isn't any good for me because what? God loves me desperately and God knows best. I don't know best. The world doesn't know best. It's okay to be confused, kids. It's okay to be tempted about these things. But we have to come back to God's standard and we have to make a decision based on God's great love for us to trust him and take him at his word even when everything else is pulling us in a different direction. I promise you, you're going to come to those places in your life. Adults, I know you're coming to those places in your life. And you've got to decide, is God going to be trustworthy? Am I going to put my dependence in him or not? Need to keep moving. So we see that sin had a negative influence on others. Your, tra- your choices influence others. Sin has a snowball effect at times. It started with Eve, and then who did it go to? Adam. See, one decision leads to another decision. But were they both responsible for their decisions? Yes, they absolutely were. Okay, so now we're going to see a human solution, verse 7. So we have the problem here. Sin has entered the world. Now we have a human solution. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. See, I told you today was going to be about sewing. Sunday's going to be about sewing. Here, here we have sewing. Okay? What happened here is we had operation cover-up. They recognized there was a problem immediately and they tried to cover it up. And unfortunately, covering up sin doesn't work. God says the one that can confess or acknowledge his sin, that person can be put into a right standing with God again. That's on a, that's on a uh, relational basis. On a positional basis, we know, of course, that the only way a sinful man can be put in a right standing with God is on the basis of a substitute taking the place of the guilty, and we'll get to that in a minute. So we see here that sewing is a, an ancient art form. So if this is your thing, you're in good company. goes back to the very beginning. But Operation Fig Leaf was ultimately unsuccessful. Let's keep reading because we see that sin had undermined the relationship with God regardless of whether man tried to cover it. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. This is after after they've instituted their own self-help plan to try to fix this problem. And we're going to see that didn't work. So they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. One segue there, they were obviously or likely familiar with what that sound was, the sound of God walking. So when you hear that song, the classic hymn of the faith, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. 
in the garden. Some say that's an unbiblical song. Okay, well, I don't know. Here you have God walking in the garden, and Adam and Eve recognize that sound. It tells me that they were likely familiar with that. Anyway, in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. A little hide-and-seek time here. Kids, you ever do that when you know you're in trouble? Huh? Try to hide out, make sure your parents can't find you? Okay, don't do that. Okay? If you hide your sin, if you don't acknowledge it, if you don't work through it, there's not going to be any restoration that can take place. Where are we at here? Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Does that mean God didn't know where he was? No, God, of course, knew where he was. He's giving him a chance to come clean. So Adam says, so he said, verse 10, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Does God know the answer? Is your sin hidden from God, kids? No, God knows the answer. He's giving him a chance again to come clean. Now, does Adam get, use this opportunity to just acknowledge his sin? No. It's operation blame game now. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. So who's he really blaming here? No, he's really blaming God. <laughs> he's saying, the woman that you gave me is defective, God. She's the one who is the problem. Anyway, where are we at here? The takeaway here isn't that. Okay. She gave me of the tree and I ate. So at the very end, he acknowledges some responsibility. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So I ate is at the very end of that. No personal responsibility there at all. It's, again, operation blame game. So we see there that we have sin undermining the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. They already had the relationship with God. See, God had told them that that would happen, though. See, God is fair. He told them in advance that would be the outcome. Genesis 2, if you look there in verse 16 and 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And guess what? He tells them what the consequence is going to be. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that phrase, you shall surely die, can literally be translated as dying you shall die. The day you eat of it, dying you shall die. In other words, dying physically, you will die spiritually. So the focus is spiritual death or separation from God. Now there's two aspects to that. There's the temporal aspect to that, and there's the eternal aspect to that. So unless something can be done about sinfulness, that personal day-by-day, moment-by-moment, that relationship in time is affected, tainted, blocked by, interfered with by sin, and the eternal ability to be where God is in the future, that's tainted, it's blocked, it's affected by the impact of sin. The right relationship with God was broken. Sin had broken that relationship. You see that in verse 7 with, they knew that they were naked, that was just evidence of their own guilty, the guiltiness that they, they felt. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, verse 8. Had never probably done that before. They were afraid of God, verse 10. Seems to be something new, not something they had experienced previously. They hid from God. Things have changed, verse 10. Not what it had been. See, you can't hide sin from God. We see that there in verse 11. 
God knew what had happened. You can't blame others for your sin, verses 12 and 13. God knew who was to blame. Adam and Eve ultimately knew who was to blame. Now we come to God alone can fix what is broken. This is kind of where we're going with this. This is the first picture of that. We want to turn to verse 21 for the sake of time. We don't have time for the rest of this. Come to verse 21. And we're going to see that there's Operation Fig Leaf didn't work. God came up with something else, though. Verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, it says, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. You see, you can't sew together a solution to cover the temporal or eternal effects of sin. You can't hide from the separation caused by sin. God alone had to undertake to fix what was broken in time and in eternity. You need a better covering, a better covering than what you can sew together with fig leaves. That's the, that's the picture here that we're seeing. You need a covering that, a solution, a rescue that is orchestrated and designed and made by God, not made by human hands. God had to make a better covering. The Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So here in the Bible's third chapter, we see a glimpse of what God's solution will involve. It's cloudy. It's not explained fully. But it's a great illustration, nonetheless, of what God has planned. See, rescue is going to involve God atoning for man's sin through the death of an innocent. And we know who that is because we're looking backwards from the New Testament, from the cross. We're looking backwards at this. We know who that is final sacrifice was. We know who the innocent substitute was for man's guiltiness, right? Who is that, kids? Jesus. That was kind of lame. We know who that is, right, kids? Who is that? Jesus, right? So that's why we have an opportunity. We say, let me tell you about my Jesus, because he is where this is all pointing to, what this is all leading to, what this is all foreshadowing. But we see it here in the third chapter of the Bible that God is already starting to show. He's pointing to how God is going to have to make right the taintedness that was caused or the separation that was caused by man's sinfulness. Now, there's a little bit said. There's a lot to take away from this. How could God have clothed Adam and Eve in a covering of animal skins? How could that have happened? What would have, what would have had to happen first? Did the animal just take his skin off? What was it? What had to happen? The animal had to die. It doesn't say lamb here. You could say maybe that's what it was because later on we see that that's what God utilized as a symbol. But an animal had to die. When there's death, there's what? Is it clean or tight and tidy or is it kind of messy? Kind of messy. You got some shedding of blood, right? Being pictured right here. Some want to beat up on this point that it's not talked about. Let me tell you, there's, there's not an example where the animal gave up his skin to cover the guiltiness of the sinner without that animal dying, without there being some blood shed. But even if you take that away, at a minimum, it's a picture. It's, it's the beginning of the way God is going to weave this story of this, to tell us that the whole Old Testament is pointing to this point of God having to fix 
this problem that man has with sin and a problem man cannot fix for himself. So we come back to the title. You can't fix this. Central to the gospel message is the declaration that apart from God's intervention and rescue, man is hopeless and helpless and hellbound. Now you hear me say that over the pulpit. That's central to the gospel. Unless there's an understanding of man's need, there's no need for a savior. There's no need for a rescue if man doesn't have a problem. So it's unsurprising then that God would begin to declare and illustrate this truth from the very first pages of the Bible. You see, you have to remember that the Bible is a cohesive story written by one divine author. God wrote this himself. And that's why Jesus, as he looked back, you think about the Old Testament, me talking to that Muslim man. The Old Testament is what is setting the groundwork for the person and work of Christ. Jesus says that in several places, that the Old Testament was pointing to him, specifically his work of redemption. Let me read for you John 5.39 as we close here, 5.39 and 40. Jesus is talking to religious people who know the Bible well. And he says this to them, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. Meaning you think it's true, but you don't. And these are they, meaning the scriptures are they which testify of me. It's all pointing to me. I'm the focus of history. That's why we call it his story. It's the story of Jesus. But he says this to them, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, could Jesus say to them if they were incapable of coming to him and putting their faith in him? No. He said, you could, but you're not willing to come to me to have life. I'm the only source of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. For those who say that certain select people are capable of believing others are not, Jesus says, no, that's not the case. He says, you could have seen me in the scriptures, but you don't. And you could come to me, but you don't. Not you cannot, you will not. That's the issue. And that's the picture that begins from the very beginning. We'll continue our series on this next time. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for the food that we're about to eat. Thank you for all, the, all those that were instrumental in preparing it. Pray that we would just even be grateful and thankful for something as small as that, as you've blessed our lives in so many amazing ways. Pray that you'd provide safety and keep this time profitable that we have here yet tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.